The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Let's look at John 17. Missions and the glory of God in Christ. Missions and the glory of God in Christ. John 17 is in the upper room discourse after Jesus had been preaching for three chapters to his disciples. It's the last sermon he gives to them. And as he's preaching to them, he wants to make them aware of what's going to happen after he goes away. And so Jesus is sharing with his disciples in John 14, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to go get you so that you'll be with me where I am. And then, of course, Philip says, well, Jesus, just show us the Father. That's enough. And Jesus reminds Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he goes on to speak in in the upper room discourse of the fact that even though he's going to go away, he's going to send another comforter, a helper who's going to be just like him, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and not only be with the disciples, but indwell the disciples, be in them. And when he comes, he's going to glorify the Son. He's going to lead the disciples into all the truth so that they could write the New Testament that we have today. And the Spirit is going to be with them forever as a down payment and seal and guarantee of our inheritance, Paul writes over in Ephesians. And so we get to John chapter 17, and Jesus was speaking about these things, and then he begins to pray. And this is the beginning of his prayer, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these things, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Missions and the glory of God in Christ. And at first glance, you might wonder, what does this have to do with missions? Well, this is about Christ's mission. He came to the earth to glorify the Father to glorify himself, and in doing so, to glorify the Father. And he says, I've completed the work that you gave me to do, verse 4. And so now, would you glorify me again with the glory that I had with you since before the world was founded? And so Christ's mission is the basis of our mission, right? Because he's the one who ascended and gave us the great commission, And what we have here is we have the foundation, the goal, the fuel of our own mission is the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. This is what should be the driving force of our mission because it was the driving force of Christ's mission. And this really is the Lord's Prayer. We we sometimes think of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13 as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us, right? That's what we think of as the Lord's prayer. But that's really the disciples' prayer. 
He taught them as a model how to pray. This is how you ought to pray as a model. Here we have the Lord Jesus speaking to his Father in heaven, and we get to overhear, as it were, the relationships between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. We get to hear what conversation is like between the members of the Trinity. And the Lord Jesus says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In fact, chapter 17 is is Jesus' prayer. Verses 1 to 5, which we're looking at this morning, is he's praying for himself that he would be glorified. And as he's glorified, the Father would be glorified. Verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. Verses 20 to 23, he prays for us, for future disciples. And in verses 23 to 26, he prays for the unbelieving world. And what we see in chapter 17 is the God-centeredness of missions. We see the reason for the church's existence. The reason we're around, the reason God hasn't taken us to heaven yet is because he has a mission for us. And that mission is to proclaim and shout out and declare the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The glory of God in the gospel. And to see people believe this gospel and turn to Christ and be a part of God's kingdom. And so the first thing we see in verse 1 is the son's mission is to bring glory to the father. The son's mission is to bring glory to the father. The theme of glory dominates verses 1 to 5. In fact, verses 1 and 2 indicate the son should be glorified because in doing so, he'll bring glory to God the father and he'll give life to Jesus' disciples. Verse 3 grows out of this mention of eternal life in verse 2 and expands on this theme of glory. This is what eternal life is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Verses 4 and 5 indicate a further reason why the Son should be glorified. Why should Jesus get the glory? He completed the work that the Father sent him to do. He finished it. He completed it. He was faithful and obedient in his task. And so the son's mission is to bring glory to God the Father. And there in verse 1, we see it's rooted in redemptive history. Jesus, verse 1, it says, John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words. Well, what words is he talking about? He's talking about chapters 14 to 16. In fact, uh, one man put it this way, the greatest prayer ever offered on earth, John 17, was given after the greatest sermon ever preached on earth, John 14 to 16. Redemptive history, what is it? It's the unfolding of God's gifting, this gifting God who gives us so much in Christ. God is the one who gives. God, in eternity past, gave a people to his Son. Scripture tells us that we were, Ephesians 1, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. The Father gives a people to a son in eternity past. And then the Father gives creation as a stage for his glory. And then the Father gives his promises about the Messiah to the prophets, to his people through the prophets. This is what Hebrews 1 speaks of. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to our fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in a son. The father after the fall, 
He knew the people needed a promise that everything was going to be made right. Everything that was lost in the garden is going to be restored. And so God sent his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets that we just spent the last six months looking at. And in it, he promises to give a Messiah One who will redeem and restore and save and deliver. One who will be a hero, who will be a mighty warrior, who will be a prince of peace. And Jesus spoke these words, chapters 14 to 16, and he says he's going to a cross. And he's going to be offered up and he's going to be crucified. But he's going to rise again and he's going to go prepare a place for his disciples And the disciples didn't understand it. They wanted him to kick off the boot of Rome. They wanted him to be a king and a ruler who was going to be a military conqueror. And instead, he goes to the cross. Instead, his victory is seen as he lays bloody and naked hanging from a tree. And what does he say? He says, it is finished. The father gives his son to be the Messiah But it doesn't stop there. After Jesus is raised and exalted, the Father gives through the Son his Spirit to his people so that the Spirit of God would be a down payment and a pledge of our adoption. Jesus preaches this in John 15 and John 16. And then we know in the future he's going to send his Son a second time and he's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth where we're going to dwell with him forever, those of us who are in Christ. This is what Jesus, as he's praying this, as he lifts up his eyes to the heaven, and he says, Father, the hour has come. It's now time. It's the high point of the ages. This is the reason I came. This is the reason I humbled myself and took on the form of human flesh. He took on a body. He took on humanity. Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but instead he humbled himself. This is why he came and was born in a manger. Took on a human nature. Made of no reputation. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He had nowhere to lay his head. And he came and he went to a cross. And he died, not for his own sin, because he was perfect. He died for us. He died for sinners. He died for us who were rebels and outcasts and those who wanted to stick our fists up in the air and fight with God and say, you're not the boss of us. And he came and he bled and he died as a substitute. And by his sin-atoning death, he finished the work the Father gave him to do in verse 4. This is what Christ did. This is what the Father gave. He gave his Son. It's rooted in redemptive history. And it reaches its high point at the cross. The hour has come. A few chapters before John 12, Jesus says, John 12, 27, My soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. He made his face like flint, as it were, and he looked to the cross. And even in the garden, as he sweat great drops of blood, and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet not my will, but thy will be done. And he was faithful 
And he was obedient and he finished the work. And this hour is the appointed moment for his death. You know, four times prior in the Gospel of John, he says, my hour is not yet come. In fact, the first one is at the wedding. His first miracle in the book of John at the wedding at Cana. They're at a wedding and they run out of wine. And so his mom says, hey, go get Jesus. Tell him to turn some water. Tell him to take care of it. And he does take care of it, doesn't he? He turns water into wine. And the guy who's leading the wedding says, oh man, normally you give the the good wine first and you give the watered down terrible stuff later. He said, but you've saved the best for last. And But Jesus tells her, woman, my time, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to be revealed as the Messiah. It's not yet time for me, for my death to happen. It's not yet time for this substitutionary work to occur. But now at the cross, this night as he knows he's facing trial, as he's facing a, a false trial and be declared guilty, as he faces the cross, he says, the hour has come. Isn't it interesting? This highlights the sovereignty of God. When you think about that, four times he says, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time. This is not the day I go to the cross. It's not the day I die. God's sovereignty, some people think God's sovereignty means you don't have to pray at all. It's like fate, fatalism. Well, God's sovereign and we're just like robots and so why do we even pray? Why does it matter? Here Jesus says God's sovereignty drives him to prayer. John 17, there's a prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. It's now time. Would you glorify the Son so that the Son would glorify you? I think this gives us great incentive to prayer. Knowing that God is sovereign, that he has us right where he wants us. Some of you are in deep waters with trials. Some of you are so weary you can hardly raise your head up. And the weight of of life and, and the trials and the finances and the burdens of everything, you feel like God has abandoned you. He is not. He is on his throne and he is sovereign and he's allowed you to be right where he wants you to be. And it should be an incentive to pray and say, Father, thank you for placing me here. I want to trust you. I want your will to be done, not my will to be done. I want you to be glorified. I want you to deliver and save me so that I will give you all the praise and the glory. And I'm going to retell your glorious deeds as we sang, hearing the saints of old as they line the way, retelling stories of his grace. This is how the Lord delivered me. This is how the Lord saved me. This is how he brought me out of the pit. I was a sinner and a rebel and I didn't want him. And he delivered me and he saved me. And he cleaned me up and he changed my life and he restored my marriage and he reconciled me to my kids or my parents or my friends. This is what the Lord did. It's all his grace. The glory of God is the thing that compelled Christ to come to the world. Christ was to be glorified, and in doing so, the Father would be glorified. I was listening to Steve Fernandez's sermon on this, and um, I, I remember taking notes from him in church growing up, and, and one of the hardest things was basically you would get the first point, and you wouldn't get any other points. And, and I want to show this to you because his first point on his sermon on John 17, 1 to 2, 
was really good, but this was his point. He's governed by his supreme passion that God would be glorified by his sin atoning death and the saving and giving of eternal life to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Mine was a little simpler. The son's mission is to bring glory to the father. But, that, but this is, I, as I was hearing him preach, I was thinking, yes, that's exactly what this text is about. The supreme passion of Jesus is that God the father would be glorified by his sin atoning death. And in doing so, be glorified by the saving and giving of eternal life to people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And then he goes on to say this, and I think he's exactly right. In missions, we must be driven by the glory of God first and the good of people second. The glory of God first and the good of people second. That's what Jesus, you see here, he's not praying for his disciples first. He's praying for himself first, that he would be glorified and the Father would be glorified, and then he prays for his disciples. See, this is what's going to drive us to have a passion as a church for missions is the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Because sometimes we don't necessarily want certain people to receive good. Sometimes you just don't have a heart to share the gospel with your enemies. Sometimes you'd rather they go to hell. How are we going to share the gospel with our enemies if we're concerned about the glory of God first? Then we will have a motive to share the gospel with those who hate us. That's how we can fulfill this great command to love our enemies like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to pray for those who spitefully mistreat us. I mean, think about our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries. How do they share the gospel with the people that are killing them and torturing them and burning their churches and tearing them down? They do so because they have a passion for the glory of God. They're passionate about it. Paul, Lee, and I were having a conversation this week about glory and, and how, how do we get glory, this idea of glorifying Christ and the glory of Christ and the glory of God in Christ, how do we get it out of the abstract in general and to the concrete and specific? So what does it mean when Jesus says, Father, or, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What does that mean? I mean, we intuitively know what glory means. We intuitively know what it means when someone wants to get all the glory. But, but what does it mean to, to, to savor, to, to rejoice in, to delight in the glory of God and the glory of Christ? Well, some of the words that are used to translate glory are helpful. In the Old Testament, the word kavod, weighty. A weightiness, a significance to something. It spoke of God's, his, his immensity, his weightiness, his significance. This idea that he's the one who's of the most significance. He's the one who's most glorious. Synonyms refer to his beauty or his, that he's honorable, that he's worthy of regard, worthy of esteem, his greatness. His praise, his renown, his esteem, he's worthy of it all. And this word 
glory here, glorified, doxadzo, it's the idea of the excellencies, the qualities, the attributes of a person. What is it that makes these Olympic athletes so glorious? Think about Michael Phelps, the swimmer. If he started putting all of the gold medals around his neck, there'd be a whole bunch of them. In fact, he's hoping to get some more, right? That's his glory, isn't it? He could take a picture with all those medals and you would say, that dude is a swimmer and he is a glorious swimmer. He is a fish like no other. There's a significance to his accomplishments. The best swimmer in the world for years. And he's proven it on the greatest stage. He's demonstrated it against the greatest competition. And you would say, when it comes to swimming, he's the man. See, this is the glory of God. His praise, his renown, his esteem, his excellencies, his qualities. And what's amazing about this is the book of John doesn't leave us to guess what is the glory of God. In John 1, as the Son is revealed, the Word becomes flesh. John says, we beheld His glory. What is it? Full of grace and truth. God is glorious in His grace. You want God, you want the Lord Jesus to be beautiful to you? Start thinking about His grace in your life. Just start recounting what he's delivered you from. Start remembering where you were and where he's taken you. How he delivered you. He saved you. He's forgiven all your sins. He's cleansed all your iniquities. He changed you so that you no longer are a liar or a thief or a drug addict. You no longer are addicted to pornography. You no longer are someone who's characterized by evil and wickedness and slander. Now you glorify Christ. Now you desire to pursue him. That is the grace of God in your life. Doesn't that make him beautiful and glorious and worthy of all esteem and honor? Think about how he's answered prayer. You didn't know how you were going to pay the bills and you got money at exactly the right time. Maybe it was someone in the church who walked up and handed you money and said, the Lord laid you on my heart. I just wanted to give you this. I don't know why, but God wants me to do it. That makes Jesus glorious and beautiful, doesn't it? You have a a child who's wandered away and who's abandoned the faith, and you see God be faithful to preserve their life and not let them go into destruction. Maybe you've seen God deliver them out of it and restore them back to you. That is to the praise of his grace. He's the one who's reconciled us back to himself. He's the one who's adopted us into his family. The father in Christ has given us a new name. He's given us a new identity. He's given us by the spirit a new nature. We're born again. All of these things are what make him glorious. He's full of grace and truth. God's passion is his own Glory and the place where it comes to a focal point is at the cross and the resurrection. You see, because when people are delivered, they're happy. Isn't that true? When you're delivered, you're happy. And when you're happy, God is glorified. And John Piper has coined the phrase that we all wish we could have coined God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. 
And so Jesus' request here for vindication is not an end in itself. He prays, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And so the second thing we see is that our mission is only fruitful because of Christ's mission. You see, if the Father glorifies the Son by vindicating His cross work and raising Him from the dead and exalting Him to His right hand, now the Son is going to go save by the Spirit these people that God gave Him. And the Son, the book of Hebrews says, hands them back to the Father and sings over us. And He says, here am I and the children you've given me. And guess who gets all the glory? The Father. The Son is glorified and in doing so, the Son glorifies the Father our mission to see people saved out of every nation, tribe, and tongue is only fruitful because Christ finished his work and went to the cross and died and was buried and rose again. And look at this in John 17 here. The Father gives the Son a number of things in this chapter. Verse 2, he gives him all authority over all flesh. Verse 2, he gives him a people. You've given him authority of all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. He also gives a people in verse 6, the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 9, I'm praying not for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Not only that, verse 4, so he gave him authority, he gave him a people, he gave him a work to do, verse 4. I completed, accomplished the work you gave me to do. Verse 7, he gives him everything. Now I know that everything you've given me is from, everything that you've given me is from you. Verse 8, the father gives the son his words. I've given them the words you gave me. Verses 11 and 12, the Father gives the Son his name. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And then he gives him his glory, verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know you sent me and love them even as you love me. That ought to astound you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus would pray for us and he would say, the Father loves us as much as he loves the Son. You, you would think, I don't know, in my mind, I think that doesn't seem quite right. I mean, this is his one and only Son, his his unique son who is fully God. How is it? I mean, it would seem okay if he just said, you love him a lot. You love us a lot. A whole bunch. But what does he say? Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That ought to astound you. One of the benefits of being saved is that you're placed in Christ. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 23. I in them and you in me. 
and that now we are in union with Christ. And the Father, when he looks at us, he sees the perfections and excellencies of his Son. And he loves us as much as he loves the Son. And so he, with great delight, embraces us and draws us near and brings us into his family so that we have refrigerator rights. We are seated at his table. We have his name. We have his inheritance. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And who gets all the praise and glory? God does. Not us. Because we knew it's not in us. It's not something we've done. It's what Christ has done for us. And we receive it by faith. And so all the praise and all the glory should go to God the Father in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ought to drive our missions. We haven't even got there yet. But our mission is only fruitful because of Christ's mission. He accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. The Father gave him all authority to save a people. He says in verse 2, you've given him authority over all flesh. He has authority over the entire race. That means Jesus has authority over you. If you're in this room this morning and you're breathing and you're a human being, Jesus has authority over you. Whether you've bowed the knee to him or not. He has rights over you. He's the boss and you're not. And the good news of the gospel is you can bow the knee to him as king and Lord and be a part of his kingdom forever. He was granted by the Father authority over the entire race. In fact, turn over to Matthew 28 real quick. I want you to see this is the basis of our mission. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The authority of Christ over all humanity should be the fuel and the assurance that our mission is going to be successful. Christ was faithful in his mission. He was granted all authority over all flesh. And now he tells us to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we should have great confidence that because Christ is king and he's on his throne and he has all authority, that in fact we're going to have fruit. That as we serve and minister in Knightson, as we're missionaries in our zip code here, we're going to have fruit. As we make disciples here, we're going to have fruit. As we make disciples by our gifts, by our going overseas, we're going to have fruit because Christ is king and he has all authority. He also says his presence will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we're not alone in this mission. You ever get intimidated and scared to share the gospel or make disciples? Remember, Christ is with you always, even to the end of the age. And he's given you his authority and his presence. And he bookended his command with those two things. He said, go and make disciples. In all of your going, wherever you go, make disciples. Start with your kids. Reach out to your neighbors, your community. Teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And see the gospel go forth in power. This should be our emphasis. This should be our pursuit. This is why the church exists. And my contention is that 
What's going to give you a desire and a passion and a goal to do this is first and foremost the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, you might not be moved by how needy somebody is, but you will be moved by how glorious Christ is. If you're a Christian and you've had your eyes opened to who Christ really is, that he's your savior and he's your Lord and he's your master and your king and that he's your friend and he's your helper, you're going to be moved by how glorious he is and you're going to want to tell others about that and about him. So the father gave Jesus all authority. The father also gave him a people to save. Back in John 17, verse 2. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. He gives eternal life to the, those the Father already gave him. The ones that the Father chose before the foundation of the world. Jesus, throughout the book of John, had been revealing a number of realities attached to the Father's eternal plan. John six thirty seven: all the Father gives the Son will come to him. John 10, 27, the son knows all of those the father gives him. He's the good shepherd. John 10, 28 and 29, they will never be snatched out of the father's hands or the son's hands. If you're a child of God, you're doubly secure in the hands of the father and son. And I know the father doesn't have hands, he's spirit. I understand that. It's a metaphor. It's a picture that says you're secure in the grip of God. And he will never lose you and Jesus is the good shepherd and he knows his sheep and he lays down his life for the sheep and he calls them by name and the sheep won't follow another they follow the savior John seventeen six. here in this passage the father's purpose is revealing his character verse 6 I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world the father's name is a reflection of his character He's the gracious and compassionate one abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love who will by no means clear the guilty. Another reality is they will be with the Son and see the Father's love and generosity toward the Son. We saw that in chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. One of the Father's eternal purposes is these people he gave his son would be with him forever and they'd be with his son forever and they would see in eternity as we're with the Father and Son, they would see the Father loves the Son. For all eternity, we're gonna be captivated by the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father In fact, we're going to experience the overflow of that. And in John 18, verse 9, not one single one will be lost. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This is the Father's plan. This is what we, we sang about, that the, uh, come praise and glorify, it's Ephesians 1. That the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to adoption, and he's planned out the path that we'll get there. And the way he accomplishes this is he sends the Son to be our Savior. He pours out the Spirit to be our pledge and down payment of our inheritance, and all of it is to the praise of his glory. 
to the praise of his glorious grace over and over and over again in Ephesians 1. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is glorious. This should cause us to want to shout and praise and thank God for who he is and what he's done in Christ. And this is our motive and our fuel for missions. The Father gave the Son a people to save, and all of those who receive eternal life will know the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, back in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word know here, gnosko, it's this idea of experiential relationship rather than just information. Not just knowing about God, knowing God, having relationship with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Having a real relationship. You see, the highest privilege of the Old Testament was to know God and experience his presence. That's what was lost in the garden. That's what the tabernacle and later the temple restored was a way for God to dwell among his people so that they could approach him in a proper manner through sacrifices, through a priesthood, that they could come into his presence and worship him. But it was a shadow. They couldn't come into his, his, his holy of holies, only the high priest could, and only once a year. But they could draw near to God who was in their presence, and of course, the reality is found in Christ who is the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate temple. We draw near through the blood of Christ, and now we enter into the holy place, not the one made on earth with hands, but in heaven himself, in the very presence of God the Father. And we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And we can draw near with assurance, with confidence, with boldness, because we know God. Those of us who placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have eternal life and we know God for who he really is. That's why the story of the prodigal son is so striking to us. We know we don't deserve it. We knew we would spend our inheritance if left to our own devices on ourselves and spend it all in wasteful living. And the character of the father is that when the son comes back, the son says, I'll just be a slave in his home. And what does the father do? Something far out of character in Middle Eastern society. He runs to the son. And he lifts his head and he wipes his tears. And he says, let's have a party. My son who was dead is alive and he's come home. And Jesus says, this reveals the heart of the father. The heart of the Father is that he will leave the 99 to go get the one. The heart of the Father is that he so loved the world, he gave a son. And eternal life is knowing him for who he really is. And Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And that's because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father to Philip. Philip said, just show us the Father, that's enough. The Father, what did he say? Every time he speaks in the Gospels, Every time the Father's voice is audible in the Gospels, he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And he says, I have glorified your name and will glorify it again. Every time he says, look at my Son. Listen to my Son. 
Know who he is. See how beautiful Christ is. See how glorious he is. And follow him. Listen to him. Obey his commands. And so that's what we do. We preach Christ. Week in and week out. And we want you to see him for who he really is. We try hard to labor to say, this is your savior. He's beautiful and he's glorious. Isn't he? This ought to encourage you this week. It ought to get you out of your depression. It ought to deliver you from the darkness, at least for a time, to say, I've seen the glory of my Savior, and I'm satisfied. I'm full of joy and hope because I know that he has saved me in the past, and he'll save me in the future. And I want to share this with others. This teaches the reality, the reality ultimate reality what's really going on the father sent his son and he poured out his spirit and there's coming a day when all of us are going to see all of us who put faith in christ are going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is first john 3 2 and so the gospel glorifies the father by proclaiming the glory of the son It's good news about the son's sufficient work. Verse four, he says, I've completed the work that you gave me to do. That work was the cross. That work was obedience to the point of death. Even the death of a cross. And God vindicated him and highly exalted him and gave him the name above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. Jesus sets a model for finishing the mission God gives us. Don't we want to be able to say at the end of our lives, I've finished the work you gave me to do. I've glorified you in everything that I've done. I've finished the work you gave me to do. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. You see, in this mission that God gives us is foreign missions. It's home missions. It's, it's making disciples wherever we are. Some of us are goers and some of us are senders. Our dear brother and sister Tony and Miriam are goers. They go and they go and they go. And we delight to participate in their going. And we don't all get to go, but we can send, can't we? We can give and we can pray and we can encourage and we can love. And however God uses us as a church we want this to be the 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 that we want this to be the statement of our ministry you finish the work you gave us to do he sets the model we want to be missionaries in our zip code right right here he also sets the motive verse 4 i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do You want to know how you're going to glorify God? Accomplish the work he gave you to do. He's prepared good works for you to walk in. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and he's prepared good works for you to walk in. And you can glorify him by finishing the work he gave you to do. So it is this good news about the son's sufficient work on the cross See, our work is nowhere near the same as Christ's work. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said we have greater works to do. And sometimes that baffles us when we read that because he says you'll do greater works than me. 
But the cross was the greatest work. So how do we do greater works? Because we share the news about the cross. And we see more fruitfulness than he had in terms of numbers. More fruitfulness in terms of reaching the nations. Jesus, while he was on the earth, didn't reach all the nations. But in Acts 1.8, he told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to receive power. And you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so our work is intimately tied to his. But we need to be sure the good news about Christ's work is his substitutionary work on the cross. He died for sinners. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And also the, Father, the gospel glorifies the Father by proclaiming the glory to the Son when we see who he is. He's not just a man, he is God. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is what John said in chapter 1. We beheld his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. We beheld his glory. Glory is from the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the one who reveals the Father, who reveals the glory of the Father because he is God. And the one whom we worship, the one whom we serve, the one who has all authority is God the Son, our Savior, our Messiah. And we ought to worship him. John Piper's quote about missions uh, has become famous in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I know many of you have read it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's a goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name. Missions begins and ends in worship. And that's what we see At the end of the age, in Revelation 4 and 5, you see the one seated on the throne who is to receive all glory and honor and power, and you see the lamb standing as if slain in the center of the throne. And the 24 elders and the heavenly beings, the the royal court sings out, sings honor and glory and majesty and power belong to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Why? Because he's redeemed a people out of every nation, tribe, people and tongue and they will reign with him forever and dwell on the earth with him forever and serve him forever in fact in revelation 22 verses 1 to 3 you see a glorious picture of all of the trinity the one who sits on the throne and the lamb in the center of the throne and the river coming out of the throne which i take to be a reference to the holy spirit because in the book of john jesus said out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water John says Jesus was speaking of the Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus had not yet ascended. And throughout the book of Revelation, there's this this picture between the sea where the Antichrist comes 
and the raging waters and the fear and the danger of the sea. But at the end of the age, the sea will be no more. And there'll just be this, this river of God flowing from the throne and we'll worship and serve the living God forever, our triune God. John 20, verse 21, after Jesus is resurrected, after his cross work, he says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He sent us on missions. But being missions-minded isn't enough. Every Christian must be on mission. See, being missions-minded or thinking that missions is just what we do when we support, that's not enough. We are called as Christians to be on mission. It's not merely what we do. It's fundamental to who we are. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are on this earth to make disciples and be about the work of missions ourselves. And so that's what I pray we would do as a church. We would be on mission. We would be salt and light in our community. We would be missionaries in our zip code. And we would support and fund our foreign missionaries who are training up pastors so that we could have an exponential amount of fruit around the world for the glory of Christ to the praise of the Father. And we know that this is God's plan and purpose. And so we want to get in line with that and trust that the Spirit of God is going to empower us to do so. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Would you use us? We want to be used as a church. We don't want you to pass us by. Father, would you glorify the Son in our midst? We want to be motivated by his glory, by his excellencies, by his beauty, Father. And so I ask you would do this for the sake of your name, for your glory. Would you see us make disciples? Would you save our kids Save those in the church who've grown up here who haven't bowed the knee to you. Save those who've spent years and years in our church coming every Sunday but who have not bowed the knee to Christ, confessed Him as Lord and Savior. Would you deliver them and save them even today, I pray. Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.